right this morning, I want to share with you uh, out of the book of Acts, in specific looking at chapter 10, I really believe a poignant and a prophetic message for the season that we are coming into as the people of God in the Northwest. Acts 10, in many ways, is the story of you and the story of me, for it tells the story of the outpouring of God's Spirit on Gentile believers. And I am thankful today that we live in a new covenant, not an old covenant. We live in a covenant of grace, not a covenant of law. We live during a time where all who call upon the name of the Lord, in fact, will be saved. We live during a time where the veil has been torn. We have been invited in to the Holy of Holies. You are not a second-class citizen. You are not a second-class believer, regardless of where you came from, the family system you came out of, your background, your past, your mistakes, your sins. In, how long you have been gone when you put faith in the finished work of Christ Jesus you are seated in heavenly places above not below you are anchored in heaven with hope and in doing so you are engrafted into the root of Jesse adopted into the family of God and granted a father who delights in his children who loves to give good gifts to those who ask and Acts 10 in many ways lays the theological framework for how we got here. It tells us the story of two primary characters, an apostle named Peter and a Roman soldier named Cornelius. And that is the story that I will share with you this morning, starting in verse 1 of Acts 10. This is what the scriptures say. Now there was a certain man. There was a specific individual. Not an ordinary person, not one in the crowd, not nameless or faceless, but there was a certain man in Caesarea called Cornelius. In fact, he was a centurion, meaning a captain of what was called the Italian regiment. Now he was a devout man. He was one who feared God with all his household. He's one who gave alms generously to the poor. And he prayed to God always. But one day, about three in the afternoon, he had a vision where he distinctly saw an angel of God who came to him and said, Cornelius. Let me stop there for a moment and provide some historical framework to enrich the teaching this morning. See, Caesarea was a Roman city on the shores of the Mediterranean Sea. It, it functioned as the local headquarters for the Roman government in the first century. If you were to travel to Caesarea today, which I have, you would still see the ruins from the Roman buildings that used to stand there over 2,000 years ago. This is where Pontius Pilate operated out of. This is where criminals were brought to stand trial. This is where Christians were gathered to be martyred. This is where soldiers were stationed. And this was where a certain man named Cornelius, a centurion of the Italian regiment, found himself on duty the day he heard an angel call him by name. Let me stop there for a moment and make this observation. 
Cornelius must have been a strange sight to see. He was a distinguished captain in the Roman military, a civil servant of the Roman Empire, grew up in a Roman culture steeped in the worship of Greco-Roman gods and goddesses. Yet the scriptures say Cornelius was no ordinary man. In fact, he was a certain man. He was a devout man. He was a God-fearing man. He was a generous man. And he was a praying man. See, the Roman Empire had 12 primary gods, each more ugly than the next. According to their mythology, these gods ruled and reigned from Mount Olympus, the highest peak in Greece. And these gods were nothing more than demons wrapped in superstition, giving license to the carnality of that polytheistic culture. Gods like Zeus, the god of thunder, Poseidon, the god of the sea, Athena, the goddess of wisdom, Aphrodite, the goddess of love, Demeter, the goddess of fertility. And hear me, friend, 2,000 years later, our culture is no less idolatrous today. The goddess of fertility no longer accepts sacrifice in a temple. She accepts sacrifice in a clinic. The goddess of love no longer entertains visitors on her steps. She swipes right on her partners. We no longer make sacrifices to Poseidon to calm the sea. We advocate reducing the population to appease the planet. But where are the certain men and the certain women who, although they've been raised in the empire, do not worship the empire's gods? See, the West has its own mythology with enough money and enough education and enough technology and enough enlightenment. We can satiate our own need for regeneration. But here is the truth. You can't save you and you can't redeem you. Half the time, you can't even stand you. You need a savior who does not dwell in temples made with human hands, but instead takes residence in the human heart by faith in the finished work of Christ Jesus. See, Cornelius had every excuse to be a common man who worshiped common idols, who debased himself with casual sex and carnal living and contemptuous debauchery. But in the midst of a common culture filled with common people, Cornelius was a certain man who stood out in the crowd. And although he was Gentile by birth, he found saving faith in a Jewish savior. So I ask again, where are those certain men today? And watch how Luke, the historian of the early church, writes about the life of Cornelius. Oh, he was devout. He feared God. He gave generously and he prayed always. See, these are the characteristics of a man or a woman who stands out in the midst of a pagan city. In the face of a short term and a shallow culture, Cornelius was devoted and faithful. He was reverential and honoring. He was cheerfully generous and constantly praying. And watch the command of Christ from the book of Matthew. Therefore, let your light so 
so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. And in the midst of his ordinary and faithful obedience to this God, the scriptures say that about three in the afternoon, Cornelius distinctly saw an angel who called him by name. The Lord called Moses by name at a burning bush. The Lord called Isaiah by name in the temple. The Lord called Elijah and Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Peter, James, John, and Zacchaeus by name. Don't be confused for a minute today. God knows your name. He knows your location. He knows your situation. And when he calls your name, do not harden your heart because something supernatural is about to break loose. Now watch, the Bible says in verse four, Cornelius stared at him in fear, which by the way is the appropriate reaction to an angelic encounter. See, in our world today, we think about angels like half-naked midgets playing harps on a cloud floating in heaven. But in the Bible, angels were messengers of fire who carried words from the throne room. When Isaiah saw the cherubim and seraphim flying back and forth in the temple, he said, I am undone by the presence of God. I am unclean amongst the people who are unclean. Take the coal of heaven and touch my lips and send me to the nation. When John saw an angel in the book of Revelation, he bowed down and worshiped him thinking it was God. And the angel said, oh, stand up. You haven't seen nothing yet. If you think I'm brilliant, let me introduce you to the one who eyes burn hotter than 10,000 suns. An angel is simply a messenger that points to the one who is worthy, who sits on the throne. Now Cornelius stared at him in fear. What is it, Lord? He asked. Now the angel answered, he said, your prayers and your gifts to the poor have come up as a memorial offering before God. Now send men to Joppa and bring back a man named Peter. See, God captures the attention of Cornelius because Cornelius had captured the attention of God. Watch what the angel says, your prayers and your gifts have caused God to remember you. I love the dichotomy of prayers and gifts. It reminds me of the theology of James. It is faith and works. It is spiritual and practical. It is ethereal and material. It wasn't either or, it was both and. Cornelius touched the heart of God because his faith prompted him to have his heart set on heaven and his hand set on earth. See, you've got a heavenly mandate and an earthly mandate. You've got a spiritual obligation and a physical obligation. If all you do is stay in the prayer closet, you're unbalanced. If all you do is stay at the food bank, you're unbalanced. But when your heart is turned towards God and your hand is set to the plow, it'll remind the king of heaven to be attentive to the requests of your life. <laughs> and watch the instruction of the angel. Go find me a man named Peter in a city named Joppa. 
because he's got something you need. And the story continues in verse 9. About noon the following day, as Cornelius' messengers was approaching the city, Peter was going up to the rooftop to pray. Now he became hungry and wanted something to eat. And while the, the meal was being prepared, Peter falls into a trance. He sees heaven opened and something like a large sheet being let down to earth by its four corners. Oh, it contained all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds. Then a voice told him, get up, Peter, kill and eat. Surely not, Lord, Peter replied. I had never, not one day, eaten anything impure or unclean. And the voice spoke to him a second time. Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. Let me set the scene for you. Two men 30 miles apart, one in Joppa, the other in Caesarea, are having near simultaneous visions that will result in them crossing paths. Cornelius don't know Peter, and Peter don't know Cornelius, yet the common denominator is that they both know Christ. You gotta remember this the next time you're scared to step out. God's already been speaking to that person you're terrified to invite to church. He already been preparing that person you're going to pray for. He already been working on the heart of that individual well before you ever showed up. Hear me today. God will never send you into a season where he hasn't already prepared a table for you to sit at. Now you got to remember, the early disciples of Jesus are exclusively Jewish. They are following who they believe to be the Jewish Messiah. But they are still struggling to come out of 4,000 years of law-based religiosity, including the dietary customs that were established by Moses in the wilderness. Now watch, Peter is the bishop of the church in Rome. He, he is the titular head of Christendom in the first century. And yet he still struggles with this Old Testament idea that righteousness is obtained by followership of the law. Now Peter has what Cornelius needs, which is the anointing and the power of the Holy Ghost. God is so intent on Cornelius experiencing this transformative power that he causes Peter to fall into a trance and shows him a vision of animals descending in a sheet. Now in 1619, the Italian artist Domenico Fetti painted this scene from Acts 10. Now I wasn't there, so I don't know what it would have looked like, but at least in the mind of this Italian artist, this is a picture of what it could have been like. Peter's in a trance. He's seeing bacon and eggs. He's seeing meat and dairy. He's seeing Chick-fil-A and Taco Bell. Food that he never dreamt of eating, not one day in his life, because the Old Testament laws still wreaked havoc in his mind. Oh friend, there's a danger you must be aware of. 
Many believers today have Jesus in their heart, but bondage in their mind. They have received salvation, which is by grace through faith, yet their minds are still unrenewed. And when you allow law-based thinking to keep you from joy-filled living, it'll create roadblocks where God intended there to be breakthrough. Now, I would assume most of us today don't deal with the weight of religious dietary restrictions. Yet, how many of us still deal with shame and condemnation, guilt and performance-based living? But I've got good news for you today. You can have freedom in your mind because God has called you clean. God has called you pure. God has called you righteous. And it is high time to crucify any thought pattern that would disagree with what God already knows to be true. I can't afford to have a thought in my mind that didn't originate in his. I am what the Bible says I am. I can do what the Bible says I can do. I have what the Bible says I have, which means I am the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus, whether I feel like it or not. Now watch verse 19, it gets better. While Peter was still thinking about the vision, the Spirit said to him, Peter, three men is looking for you. So get up and go downstairs. Do not hesitate to go with them, for I have sent them. Now the following day, Peter arrived in Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them and called together his relatives and his close friends. Why? Because the natural output of expectancy is a culture of invitation. I'm expecting God to do something. I'm expecting God to touch me. I'm expecting God to meet me and heal me and redeem me and change me. You ought to come and be a part of what is happening here. Come and see what God would do in a church like this. Now watch. Peter said to them, you are well aware that it is against our law for a Jew to associate with or even visit a Gentile. <laughs> but, but, but God has shown me that I should not call anyone impure or unclean. Then Peter began to speak. I now realize how true it is. I can now see what I was formerly blind to. I know I got the accolades and the resume of being the primary leader of the Christian church. I know people are reverential in their honorific status towards me. I know that I'm an author of scripture. I know that I'm an eyewitness to the things that Christ has done, but there is still room in my heart for the Holy Spirit to challenge me. I have not graduated out of my great need for the Spirit of God to lead me into all truth. I have not somehow passed the test and now surpassed the mandate to grow and mature in the things of God. I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts from every nation the one who fears him and does what is right. Oh friend, you've got to understand the significance of what's happening in this moment. Cornelius is a Gentile, strike one. 
Cornelius is a Roman soldier. Strike two. Peter is about to break the religious law by entering the house of an unclean outsider, but he is compelled by his rooftop trance. I cannot call unclean what God has made clean. This wasn't some like minor disagreement between neighbors about your out of control lawn. The entire Jewish theological system was built on the idea of separation from the Gentile. They want to eat together. They want to work together. They want to do business together. They want to help each other. They want to sit next to each other. And never in a million billion years would they be caught dead worshiping together. Let me help give you perspective. Slavery was abolished by the 13th Amendment 89 years after our country was founded. The Jewish-Gentile divide has been 4,000 years of ethnic and social division. And in Acts 10, it is crumbling right in front of us as the Holy Spirit is getting ready to pour out on the household of Cornelius. And 2,000 years later, you and me are just a bunch of Gentiles. And because God does not not show favoritism we've been granted the inheritance of his spirits now watch the miracle that is at play in this moment Peter is verbalizing what the law restricts but in the same breath he is allowing God to redefine what the spirit permits and is not this the pattern of Christ I know the law Moses says to stone her but I'll forgive her I know the custom of the day is that a rabbi shouldn't eat with sinners, but I have come to seek and save that which is lost. I know the expectation is not to fraternize with the leper, but at my touch, they are made clean. And I love this statement from Peter. I now realize how true it is. Peter couldn't realize the truth behind this statement until he was willing to be inconvenienced on a rooftop by a vision while he was waiting for lunch. My question for you today would be how many truths are waiting on the other side of your willingness to be inconvenienced? Peter was an apostle, a bishop, an author of scripture, a church planter, a missionary. And yet in the midst of all his accolades and titles and accomplishments, he needed God to do some heart surgery to move out some roadblocks and take off some blinders. And here's the good news. God shows no favoritism, which means God's blessing has almost nothing to do with me and everything to do with him which means I don't gotta get jealous when God blesses somebody else because the same God who blessed them is more than capable to bless me. How often have you had the I now realize it's true moments in your Christian walk? I didn't believe it before, but I now realize. I couldn't see it in the last season, but I now realize. It didn't make sense in my last journey, but I now can see the truth that even when I didn't understand, God was setting me up for a blessing I did not deserve. I couldn't understand why he said Snohomish, but I now 
see how true it is. I couldn't understand why he said Seattle, but I now see how true it is. I don't understand why he said Kirkland, but there will come a day where we see how true it is. I might not understand now, but I'm not willing to bow at the altar of my understanding. I've got a yes in my heart, and I'm saying, God, not my will, but your will be done. I now realize how true it is. And now Peter launches into a sermon of his own. And this is where we end today. Maybe my favorite apostolic preaching moment in all of the New Testament, starting in verse 36. You know the message God sent to the people of Israel, announcing the good news of peace through Jesus Christ, who is Lord of all. You know what has happened throughout the province of Judea, beginning in Galilee after the baptism that John preached. You know that God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power, that he went about doing good and healing all who was oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. We are witnesses of everything he did in this country and in Jerusalem. Oh, they killed him by hanging him on a cross, but God raised him from the dead on the third day and caused him to be seen. He has commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one whom God has appointed as judge of living and the dead. Oh, all the prophets testify about him and everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. You know the message God sent. You know what is happening in this region. You know that God anointed Jesus with the Holy Spirit and with power. They killed him, God raised him, and he has commanded us to preach this message. You know he was Jesus the man, but I am telling you, he is also Jesus the Christ. He is not just human, he is divine. And this, my friends, is the gospel message. And as Peter is preaching the resurrected Christ, as he is testifying that Jesus is in fact the fulfillment of what the prophets foretold in previous generations, as he is reminding his captive audience about the baptism of the Holy Spirit and of power that came on Christ at the moment that John dumped him in the Jordan River, as he is preaching these precious realities. The Bible says, while Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard that message. That word fell in the Greek means to embrace with violence. As Peter is preaching in the living room of a man he did not know just an hour before, 
crossing the threshold of a Gentile household that he would have never done before as he is simply giving witness to the reality of a resurrected Jesus, not with fancy words, not with wise philosophy, not with great illustrations, not with the best communication skills, but with a demonstration of God's power as Peter preached the Holy Spirit violently embraced the Gentiles and they were never the same. The Bible says that even Peter's ministry companions, fellow Jews, were shocked. They said, we knew it was going to be good, but we didn't know it was going to be this good. How have even the Gentiles received the gift of God's Spirit. Hear me, friend. God is going to save people you'd never even consider. He's going to use people you'd never even choose. This is the beauty of the God we serve. Could it be that this is what we are experiencing here? God choosing a city that everyone laughed at. God choosing a people that no one believed in. God placing his hands on things we would have never considered. And the Holy Spirit embracing us with such a violent grip that he refuses to let go. I am absolutely convinced that we have never needed the power of the Holy Spirit more than we need it today. This is not some bygone era. This is not just some historical manuscript. This is not just an interesting moment in a city named Caesarea. This is the fulfillment of what the prophet Joel prophesied, that in the last days, God would pour out his spirit on all flesh, on young and old, on male and female, on men servants and maid servants, on Jew and on Gentile, for in the spirit, we are one. And what began in Acts 10, was a tidal wave that now crashes into the shores of local churches all across this region. What I couldn't earn and what I didn't deserve and what I could have never amounted to in the fullness of time, God engrafted me into his family, gave me the spirit of adoption. And today I am on the receiving end of the inheritance of heaven, the great helper, the paraclete, the comforter, the Holy Spirit who fills us up to overflowing. And I sincerely believe that that is the experience many will have Sunday night, Monday night, and Tuesday night through the public proclamation of a resurrected Savior, the Holy Spirit violently embracing people in their seats.
as we are confronted with the reality that God is not dead, he is not sleeping, he is not the God of Rome who cannot see or cannot hear. He is the one true living God who desires to dwell amongst his people. I am still foolish enough to believe today that the Holy Spirit can violently embrace a church, violently embrace a city, violently embrace a university, violently embrace a frat house, violently embrace a workplace, violently embrace the next generation. We have sold everything that we have to give our lives to this great mission because I still believe that through the public proclamation of Christ's resurrection, the Holy Spirit grips the hearts of men and women. This is the God that we serve. And this is the gospel that we've been entrusted with. Oh, it is my heart's desire that when people gather here on Sunday morning, when they, when they gather in our building Sunday nights in Seattle, that they don't walk away impressed with the skill of the worship team or the preacher or the altar team or the building or the design or the graphics or the images or the videos, but what they leave with that building is a burning heart knowing that they have touched the holy. I can't explain it and I can't define it, but I no longer want to engage in the same addictions that I had before. I've got to give it up in pursuit of this God. I've never understood it. I can't quantify it or qualify it, but I know that I know that I know that I have been gripped by the eternal. And as Peter is preaching, the heavens were opened. The Holy Spirit fell and he is still falling on the hungry hearts of Gentile men and women like me and you today. Oh God, I pray that the violent embrace of your spirit would like a canopy cover this region. Oh God, that you would introduce a generation to the unfiltered, unmitigated outpouring of your presence and your power. Oh God, we come to you today in great spiritual need, recognizing that all the money in the world can't buy the oil that you desire to pour out, that all the tech in the world can't replace the wind of your spirit that fills a room, that all the nice sounding philosophy from the wisdom of man still can't compel the heart of stone back into a heart of flesh. And oh God, today we are more dependent on your spirit than ever before. We are asking for outpouring. We are asking for salvation. We are asking for baptisms, healing, signs and wonders. We are asking that you would do your best work. We are asking for revival in our day and reformation in our lifetime. And until no stone is left unturned from Snohomish to Seattle and beyond. We say today, this God is still worthy to receive the reward of his suffering. And so we are saying, if you will be our God, we will be your people. And we are asking once again, that your spirit would pour out on a dry and a thirsty land. 
and we prophesy today the Pacific Northwest into God's reality. I call this region saved. I call this region filled. I call this region with an economic turnaround. I call this region with tens of thousands of young people on fire for Jesus. I call this church filled. I call every bill paid. I call every building into the kingdom. We say this place belongs to you. It has always belonged to you. It will always belong to you. For from you are all things. 